Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. For us, picking up at uh, chapter 14, verse 24. So. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid, had laid on an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I have avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was a honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he had put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food on this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines had not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash and Alon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. The people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an, an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this, has, how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. 
But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim, but of this, but if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan said, or Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one heir of his herd head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he trod or he rotted, rotted them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvai, and Malchishua, and the names of his daughters, two daughters, were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael, and the name of Saul's wife, wife was Anom, and the daughter of Amaz, and the name of commander of his army was Abner, and the son of of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attacked him to himself. Thank you, Berlin. Remember once again that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask his help as we look at this passage together again. Father, we come to you now and just thank you for a new day, Lord, and just the fall weather. We thank you for um, for just even a time of year where we just uh, pause to just give thanks, Lord, acknowledging that um, all things have come from you, Lord, that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. And so I pray that uh, we would just give all praise and glory to you. And Lord, we also just think of so many across the world today that are facing um, persecution or wars that are happening and threat of life, Lord. We, we do long for um, just to, to see your, your glory and uh, Lord, your law cover the earth as the water does the sea. And Lord, we pray you help us to be steadfast and faithful We pray for Christians across the world today, Lord, that uh, they would just remain steadfast as well and continue to proclaim the gospel of your kingdom to to praise uh, Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And Father, that we also would learn from even these Old Testament stories and and pictures, Lord, that we would also be uh, a people who are holy and who honor you and all that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, it's been kind of strange over the last few days as we've been trying to continually study in 1 Samuel and we see all of the uh, upheaval that was happening then and then even in the news now we hear of, uh, of enemies of Israel from Gaza attacking Israel and we see the, the long-term uh, effects of even some of the things that took place many years ago and uh, the ongoing struggle and turmoil. Um, but we also see in the midst of all of these things, God is unfolding his plan. He's unfolding a design, specifically that his own king would ascend the hill of Zion. And this morning we look at our section here in uh, 1 Samuel 14, and it's such an unusual account. Uh, it's certainly a memorable one. And we, it, I admit that in trying to go through and, and discern exactly what we want to draw out of the passage today. It's been challenging to know where to focus or what details to, to spend time looking at, what things to, to go over. Um, but continually came back to this theme of Saul's rash words, Saul's reckless words, and the devastating effects that that had upon him, upon his countrymen, upon his own son, potentially. And there is, a, there is a sense of warning here, but we also see the contrast between Saul and Jonathan building. And so while we uh, look at these, you know, kind of zoom in on these specific events, we also want to keep the larger lens in mind that we see God uh, orchestrating uh, the, the, the nation of Israel through this season of the king that they wanted, the king that they in many ways deserved, but moving towards the king of God's choosing the man after God's heart. And Samuel uh, um, prophesied to Saul that he would lose the throne and that God would appoint one after his own heart. And Jonathan becomes this sort of foretaste of the king to come in many ways. And so we want to keep those larger views and, and perspectives in mind as we look at our passage this morning. And I'm supposing at uh, one point or another, all of us have maybe wanted something really badly Maybe it was uh, an expensive car that you really wanted and you thought if you could own that vehicle that you would be happy, you would be content, you would enjoy driving it and all of your friends would be impressed with your new vehicle. But you also knew that you really couldn't afford the vehicle. You didn't have the money to pay for it and even to make payments was going to be very difficult for you. But perhaps you went ahead and you purchased the item nonetheless. And what you thought was going to be a blessing to you, was going to make life better, actually became a burden and became a source of suffering to you as you struggle to to make ends meet. And in some ways, that's the picture here. As Israel had convinced themselves they needed a king to deliver them, they needed a king to, to go out and battle before them, and that was going to make life much better What we find is actually the opposite, as God had warned them and through Samuel, that if they do this, 
that the king will actually be oppressive to them. It will become a burden. He will take the the best of their sons and he will take their daughters and he will take their land and, and he will rule over them harshly. And so this in many ways is immediately seen in the life of Saul. And in Saul, we have this very mixed character, mixed motives and mixed desires. But I think we can also relate to the struggles that we see playing out in these stories. Um, We all use words, hundreds of them every day. We're making commitments and promises, and we know how easy it is to be reckless with our words, to, to say things that we wish we could retract, but once they leave our mouth, we actually cannot. And there's a proverb in uh, Proverbs 18:21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. And in fact, there are many proverbs that uh, came to mind in thinking about this account of Saul and the use of the tongue, the, the devastation or the good that can come from the words that we speak, from the things that we say, the commitments that we make. And we really just see this snowballing effect of Saul's recklessness with his words, with what he's saying, with what he's committing before his people. And in fact, we have the initial vow that he makes in verse 24. He lays it on the men and says that the one who eats before evening will be cursed until he's avenged on his enemies. And so Saul makes this bold seemingly impressive vow that if anyone takes food before evening, they'll be cursed and they're going to go on empty stomachs and and hunt down their enemy. But we also see other foolish and reckless words of Saul. In verse 39, he just continues to heap upon himself these bold but really reckless statements. In verse 39, for as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. So he vows that if Jonathan is the one who had sinned in any way, that he would certainly die. And then again in 44, Saul again piles on himself more reckless words. He says to Jonathan, God, do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And we just see this example of a man who is careless in what he's saying, careless in what he's committing and what he's promising, not thinking biblically about God's own instruction on the use of vows and promises and our words. And so because we see in Saul here these words having this devastating effect, we are reminded as followers of Christ that we also must be very careful with our words. We should be very careful to examine ourselves, to test what we say in light of God's word, seeking to build up and to to do good and not to bring about devastation. And why must we do this? Well, we really see, and we could break it up in a number of different ways here, but we see four specific that I want to look at with with you this morning, um, reasons why we must be careful And the dangers we see realized in Saul's life here in leading his men. Four reasons why we must be careful in how to use our words. First of all, we see that reckless words at times may lead to the ungodly binding of the conscience. And in many ways, this is what Saul did to his men. 
he sets up a new law as king, essentially an edict, that if anyone eats, they will be cursed. They will be cut off and they must fast until all my foes are vanquished. Saul seeks to bind the conscience of his men with his own opinions and ideas and this reckless vow. And this is something as Christians we must guard against, not only that our own conscience not be bound to anything other than the word of God, but that we not bind the conscience of others in our care, especially in in a position of authority. We do not want to appeal to our opinion, to our own laws and edicts, but we should appeal to the word of God alone. Listen to uh, what the Confession of Faith in chapter 21 says on Christian liberty. It says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commandments out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience, requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. And we see in this moment Saul in binding the conscience of the men in something that God had not instructed him to do actually becomes a source of burden and pain and we will see even of sin for them. Now we know God does take very seriously our words And especially when we promise something or vow something, in Numbers 30, verse 1, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And this is why, especially in the New Testament, Jesus warned against the use of oaths and vows And uh, James, we saw not long ago, also warned against swearing by this or that. And and, and, and it's not saying that there's never a place for a, a righteous vow. We see at different times men also using a righteous vow unto God. But it's something that we must be so careful in. We must be so careful with with the use of our words, knowing that God will certainly hold us account. And in Saul's recklessness, he brings about much pain upon his people, upon his nation, and he seeks to bind the conscience in a way that is not biblical. And there is certainly an element of truth here for us as well, that we ought to be careful with the use of our words. You know, we could think of the situation of a home, a husband or a mother or a wife, you know, husbands, that we are not laying upon our wives things that, that are above and beyond the commands of God, whether it's, you know, at times maybe restricting the conversations with a, a friend or we want to control um, how they go about, you know, homemaking. I know sometimes uh, I get too opinionated with, with the way things my wife ought to do things in the house and the way things should be organized. And, and this is something of her domain. And, and, and sometimes we try to lay upon one another these expectations, these requirements or these laws even that can be reckless. And this was a pattern of the Pharisees. We see Saul as something of even a a former Pharisee, if you will. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for laying upon the people burdens and laws that he himself had not. their, Their yoke became heavy and wearisome to the people of God. And as as. Spouses, we need to be careful that we're not laying upon 
burdens and expectations upon one another that are not from the scripture itself or even upon our children. That we are governing the things that we say, we're governing the expectations upon one another from the word of God. Not seeking to bind the conscience in a way that is unbiblical. But we also see in Jonathan this sort of freedom from the binding of the conscience. Now, we're told that he did not hear the oath that Saul has said. It is assumed probably if Jonathan had heard it out of respect for his father and of his position, he, he probably would have um, not eaten, but he did not hear, we're told in verse 27. And so Jonathan displays this sort of freedom from this binding of the conscience, from this unlawful um, use of Saul's authority. And as a result, he is nourished and he is uh, helped by the, the provision that comes. And we saw this as well, even in our own country. We think of the, uh, a nation's tendency to time side, try to bind the conscience of people. We saw this with our own government and trying to bond, bind the conscience of people in regards to their, their own personal health with the use of vaccines or the restrictions with visiting family and loved ones or assisting somebody as they were dying. We, we saw this in a, in, a, in a very abusive way, this unbiblical binding of the conscience and the devastation that it can bring. And there is a strong warning for us. And even the workplace at times, there can be the abuse of authority in a way that, that tries to bind the conscience. And as Christians, we need to realize when we are being told to submit to the laws of man in an unbiblical way. And in that moment, even as the apostles would, would tell the, the Pharisees that they, they can restrict them all they want from preaching the gospel, but they must obey God rather than men. And that is to be our response, that when we are told to do something in violation of God's word, that we simply submit ourselves to the word of God and we appeal to his authority. Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot stop people's tongues and therefore, the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. And sometimes there is a place for us to say, you know, I don't have to put myself under that expectation or that law or that regulation. And unless I am proven by scripture that this is something that I must do. We must be careful in the way that we use our words, lest we un biblically bind the conscience of one another. But also we see, secondly, there's the unnecessary restriction of God's blessing as Saul is rash and reckless with his words. He unnecessarily restricts the men from enjoying the provision that God had put in their path. And the picture here is, is so rich with, with symbolism, especially for the Israelite. Here they are, they have won a victory over this garrison by the, by the hand of God through, through Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they are famished, they are hungry, they are exhausted, and they are continuing to, to uh, proceed against the enemy. And wouldn't you know, they come into a forest and there are literally honeycombs on the ground filled with honey as though God himself were providing a, an abundant resource for this army. But because of Saul's reckless words and rash vows, they're actually not able to enjoy the goodness of God in this moment, except for Jonathan alone. 
And honey, especially for the, the nation of Israel, is far more than just a, a sweet substance to put in our coffee or to spread on our, our bread. If you recall, uh, as God told the Israelites in Exodus 3, 8, describing of the land that he was going to give them, in uh, Exodus 3, 8, we read, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And when God describes the land to the Israelites over and over again, as he tells them the land he's going to give them, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. This becomes a picture of God's abundant provision of God's um, outpouring of blessing and mercy upon his covenant people. And uh, it is used, uh, there's at least over 50 times where this comes up throughout the scriptures, this imagery of honey as God's provision. We're told even the manna in Exodus 16.31 tasted like wafers and honey put together. So, you know, this was... uh, Again, an indication of God's provision for his people. Honey was a symbol in many ways for the people of Israel of God's abundant care and provision. And so the irony is not missed here as Saul in his recklessness, he causes the people to miss the provision of God. Here they are in the land. It's flowing with honey. And yet because of his recklessness and careless words, his men are not able to enjoy the goodness of the land. And Proverbs 16.24 picks up on this imagery as well. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, the way is death. And that's exactly the contrast we see here. Gracious words, words that are consistent with with God's word, which are given for the upbuilding and the good of the people, are like honeycomb, Solomon says. But there's a way that seems right to man in our own thinking. There's a way that seems best. But that way, we're told, leads to death. And that is, in many ways, what we see Saul walking down. A way that, in his own mind, his own thinking seemed good. This seemed like a way to motivate my men to fight. I would vanquish my foe. And there's even an element here of Saul possibly being jealous over Jonathan's victory. Uh, he, he never once acknowledges Jonathan's faithfulness, Jonathan's courage. There seems to be this almost idea that Saul will finish what Jonathan started. Saul will show himself to also be a mighty deliverer for the people. And he seems to be more and more motivated by this desire for the praise of man. And that comes through later on as well, even thinking as David comes and they sing how David kills his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And, and this turns Saul against David. He's angry that he is not the one who has killed ten thousand. And he pursues this way that ends up bringing his people into bondage and restricts them from God's blessing. It's like the father who takes his family on a long road trip. And as you know, as you go on a road trip, you usually don't plan to, to eat out all the time. So maybe you bring a cooler with food and in the, in the cooler you have some provisions for mealtime so you can just keep driving as you go. 
But imagine a father who takes the time to pack the cooler with his wife and the children are driving. It's coming on mealtime and they're hungry. And he says, sorry, you're not allowed to eat the cooler. I, re- I forbid it. And if anyone does, you know, they're going to have to walk for a mile or something like that. And it's almost a picture of Saul here who had opportunity when he should have been looking out for his men, caring for them, um, and giving them the nourishment that God had provided instead withholding and restricting that simply because of the rash vows and words that he spoke. Now, this is obviously in a very practical sense. In a very practical way, they were kept from physical nourishment. But I think there is also a picture of what happens many times, even spiritually speaking. We're told as fathers especially not to provoke our children to anger. You see, the use of our words may become the restriction of someone else, of those around us especially, from receiving the goodness and the blessings of God. We can either cause someone to be encouraged and to seek after the Lord, and sometimes you're around people, or maybe you listen to a a sermon or a song, and it, it builds up your soul, and you're encouraged to press on, you're encouraged to seek the Lord afresh, or at times you can be around people who are very negative, very pessimistic, very, very despairing and hopeless. And it just has this sense of, of depriving your own soul and, and you feel exhausted, you feel depleted after. You see, God has made it so that as his people, we have opportunity to encourage and to build up and to speak truth to one another in a way that is edifying. Or through our words, we may actually restrict people from receiving the goodness and nourishing word of God. I love the example of of Paul the Apostle in in Ephesians 4.29. Instructing the church, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul says, don't let corrupting talk come from your mouths, but that which is build good and, and building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's an incredible thought that as we are feeding upon the word of God, as we are abiding in Christ and walking in the strength of his spirit, we have opportunity to speak words of encouragement, words of life to one another, and we can build them up. We can be a means of grace to them by the spirit of God that works in us. Or we can be a restriction. And especially we see this picture of um, not only Saul as king, but as father here, and an unwillingness to just admit his own folly. He just continues pressing on in, in his foolishness. But not only does Saul seek to bind the conscience of his men, and not only does his words restrict them from God's blessing and provision in the forest, but also we see there's an unintentional, I would, I would say, an unintentional stumbling block to others because of his reckless words. Saul actually 
brings about an opportunity for the men to sin. We don't want to say he necessarily forced them to sin. I don't think it was Saul's intention that because of the reckless use of his words, that all of his army would sin against the Lord. But because he was not thinking of of them and and, and leading in a way that is consistent with a, a gracious God, he actually brings about a stumbling block to them. And we find in verse 31... They continue fighting against the Philistines and they continue on from Michmash to uh, Agilon. And not saying that right, I don't think. Um, and the people are exhausted. They're very faint. And now as they've won another small victory, they see the spoils of the, the, the camp, perhaps. The animals that are there, the, the provisions of food. And now that the, the sun is going down, the day is coming to an end they realize they now can eat. Saul's vow has been fulfilled, but they are so hungry. We have this disturbing picture of them pouncing on the spoils. They take the sheep and oxen. They slaughter them on the ground so they should have hung them up or at least on a rock so the blood could drain out of them properly as God had instructed them. But they're so hungry, they eat the the meat with the blood still in it. And Saul, realizing uh, what's happening, he's told, look, the people are sinning against God. They're eating this, blood, this meat with, with the blood still in it. And, and he tries to patch the situation back together. He says, okay, bring a large stone over here to me. Tell everyone they have to come here and they have to slaughter their animal. And he somewhat supervises this so that they're properly draining the blood out and not sinning against the Lord. But nonetheless, the deed is done. They had sinned against the Lord and all of this unnecessarily because of Saul's recklessness. We know in Leviticus 19.26, God clearly forbids that they, they eat the blood in the animals. Um, the, the blood was symbolic of the life of the animal. And the life belongs to God. And so for this reason, God says to the people, do not eat the blood, don't drink the blood. The blood is sacred in that sense unto God. It represents the life of the animal. It is used in the offerings and the sacrifices, but is not to be consumed. And because of Saul's recklessness, he, he leads them in, in sin before God. And again, the irony here is, is so much because in Saul's attempt to have his men keep his word, he leads them, he, he leads them to disobey God's word. And again, this is something we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus confronting the Pharisaical notion that they are heaping laws upon the people, but all the while causing the people to disregard the law of God. And Jesus gave the example of the, the treatment of their parents and saying you know, they, 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 wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't take care of their parents in their old age. And they were saying, well, we, we designate that money to the Lord. We, we're not supposed to uh, take from the Lord and, and, and help our parents. And Jesus rebuked them. And he said, have you not read? Like, honor your father and mother. Don't think by your laws you can somehow bring about uh, a disregard for the law of God. And this is the great danger of heaping up laws and regulations and and being reckless with our words. We can actually set ourselves up as a stumbling block to others. It's always shocking as a parent, as you maybe at times lose your temper or you spout off something that you, you know you shouldn't have. And in a few moments, you hear your child say the exact same thing. 
Or perhaps we can be a, a source, as I said, of, of discouragement to someone or of hopelessness through our words. We have to be careful that through a, a reckless use of our words, we don't set up stumbling blocks to others. Paul in Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In Ephesians 5, 4, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Not only did Saul's recklessness become a source of stumbling to his countrymen and sin, but we see the, the unfair harm it does to others as well. Because of this, Jonathan almost lost his life. And Saul was prepared to, to kill him. And we have this interesting process um, where Saul is, okay, the, the, the people have eaten, they're, they're, they're nourished. Saul is saying, okay, let's, Let's now carry on. We'll, we'll march through the night. We'll, we'll overtake the Philistines and we'll have them defeated by daybreak. And he's just on this mission to, to, to really almost vindicate himself, it would seem. Not thinking anything about those under his care. But the priest comes and says, well, maybe we should seek the Lord. Maybe we should draw near to God. Saul had started doing so earlier when uh, Jonathan was taking out the garrison and then kind of cut it short. So now the priest's like, maybe Saul, we should just pause and we should seek the Lord together. And Saul obviously uh, would be extremely foolish to at this point deny the priest his request, says, okay, let's inquire of the Lord. And uh, the Lord does not answer. And it's difficult exactly to know how this all unfolded I showed the, the kids a picture of the, the high priestly garment and on the breastplate, uh, there would have been the, the Urim and the Thummim, which the high priest could use in times of decision. And there seems to be a lot of mystery exactly how the, these lots worked. Um, we see the casting of lots also throughout the, the scriptures, but the, the Urim and the Thummim were, were kind of a sacred lot. And it seems that there was a way in which there could be a no response from God Maybe it was something of a stone and they had a mark that, you know, one, one meant yes, one no, and then blank sides. We're not exactly sure how this worked. And God probably has kept it from us, lest we try and repeat it somehow to make decisions in life. Could see somebody doing that for sure. You know, I found the sacred uh, Urim and Thummim and now I can discern my way through life. But um, this was a provision God gave to Israel through the high priest. And so... This seems to be the way in which they inquire of the Lord and also seek to discern who had broken the vow that Saul had made. So not quite sure how that worked, but possibly the priest pulls out both. Or maybe they were cast onto the ground and depending how they landed would be the answer uh, from the Lord and uh, something of that nature anyways. And so Saul, um, realizing that God is not answering, assumes that there must be sin in the camp. And we almost get this, uh, this picture of, of Joshua and Achan when he stole the, the, the goods that were forbidden to him. And as a result, God is silent to Joshua and they have to discern where the sin in the camp is. And it turns out that Jonathan is discovered to be the one who had broken the vow that Saul had made. 
Which is interesting because Jonathan didn't agree to the vow, but it is a picture of the seriousness of, of, of these things. What Saul maybe said in haste or without, without much thought actually in many ways does become binding to him. And if it wasn't for the people's counter vow, so we have Saul just heaping up these reckless vows one upon the other, that if, if uh, as, you know, as, as, the God, as God lives, he says, so he's, he's swearing by God, he's, he's invoking the name of God in his vow, that this one will certainly die, even if it's Jonathan, it's found to be Jonathan. He again vows by the name of the Lord, Jonathan must die. And then it's the people who are with them who give a counter vow, and they say to, to King Saul, far be it as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for which he has for he has worked with God this day and so we're told the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die and it's almost again this picture even of uh, we think of uh, Jephthah the, the the man in Judges um, chapter 11 20 remember he vowed that if God gave him victory over his enemy that whatever came out of the gates when he got home he would sacrifice to the Lord and as he returns home it's his own daughter that comes out of the gate and it's implied in the text that Jephthah actually had followed through with that foolish vow. And Saul, in a similar fashion here, now is ready to kill his own son because he dared to eat a little bit of honey in the forest after fasting for no telling how many hours. And it's just such a, a bizarre scene. And we, we see the, the, the recklessness of this man. He seems on the one hand to have good intentions, but led by his passions and his desires to, to establish a name for himself, perhaps, to show himself strong before the people. His tongue is not guarded. Now, as we conclude then, Remember, as Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And we certainly learn from Saul here the folly of operating our own wisdom, the danger of being reckless with our speech, and, and the devastation that that can cause. We see those warnings throughout the New Testament as well. But we also, I think if we're honest, identify somewhat here as well with Saul's fallenness, that we know that our speech is not always perfect, that we have been guilty at times of maybe unneedlessly binding the conscience of others, especially under our authority. Or perhaps we have restricted someone from a thing which God has called good. Maybe we have been a stumbling block with our words and, and the response, uh, the question is, well, then what? You see, again, what we see Saul failing to do is to repent, to acknowledge his own guilt. It's interesting, even as he is trying to discern why God is silent, he's not even for a moment considering the sin might actually be in him. He might actually be the problem. He's like, either it's my son, Jonathan, or it's all of you. And he himself is obviously righteous. But Saul never pauses to consider the, the wrong and the harm of his own actions. And they seem to just kind of, at that point, pack up and go home and, and, and just give up on pursuing the Philistines any further. 
So when we do see our own failure and shortcomings, there needs to be a response of repentance to God. And in this uh, example, we see the, the failure of Israel's first king, but it does also set the stage to help us better understand and appreciate the true and righteous king, Jesus Christ, who would come as the descendant of David, who had never once broken a promise, Jesus, who had never once spoken in a reckless and careless way, but always spoke the word of the Father perfectly to the people. We have this perfect king contrasted with the the king of the people, if you will. And Jesus, in his perfection, goes to the cross and willingly suffers and dies so that our reckless words and our foolishness can be forgiven in him. If we will humble ourselves, if we will repent and acknowledge our guilt before God, we will receive the forgiveness offered through Christ and be granted his own righteousness. And then as spirit-filled believers, we are to continue being sanctified in how we speak and the use of our words. And I just want to leave you with Matthew 12, uh, some words from Jesus in the Gospels here, because I think it also sheds a very important light on this whole passage with uh, Saul and Jonathan. So in 1234, uh, 1233, sorry, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasures brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And this is the important key that we must understand. We could polish up the outside of the cup and just try to focus on the, the, the words that we speak. Or we can realize, as Jesus is saying, that the words that we speak and the way that we use them reflect something of our heart. And so when we see this disconnect between what we should be uh, saying and how we should be speaking to one another, and we see recklessness and folly at times, we realize that's flowing from our heart. And, and we need to humbly come before God and confess it and Pray that God would renew us, that he would transform us. Perhaps you've never repented and and believed upon Christ. And you have not been given this heart of flesh by the Spirit that enables us to begin speaking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And what's tragic even as we think about Saul and these vows that he so carelessly spouts off. In many ways, the Lord holds him to those vows. It will be a long time, but eventually... We know Saul and Jonathan do both die in battle side by side. And these reckless words of Saul are in many ways brought down upon his own head. So let us be careful, slow to speak, quick to listen, and abiding in Christ, who is our perfect prophet, priest, and king, even as we reviewed with the children, our prophet who has spoken perfectly. Let us abide in him and reflect him as we go throughout this week. Let's pray and we'll close there this morning.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, Lord. And Lord, we know that in and of ourselves, we are prone to the exact same failures and shortcomings that we see in the, in the scriptures, Lord. These men and women who, born with a sinful nature, Lord, we find warnings and cautions in their examples. We also find pictures of faithfulness and courage. But Lord, all of it we know is ultimately pointing us forward to Christ, Lord, who alone is the new Adam, the perfect one, the one who, Lord, was perfect in all of his ways, in his speech, never once having sinned. We, we can't imagine, Lord, uh, a life of such holiness. And we confess to you that many times we are reckless with what we say and how we use our words, Lord, even the use of promises and such, Lord, help us to be careful Help us to be governed by your word and, Lord, to be speaking um, truth and life to one another and to those around us so that you might receive the glory and the praise. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ granted to us by faith, Lord, and may we abide in him as we move into this week. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.